tiempo cuando caiga para que no las puedas convertir en cristal. Hey everybody, this is Merrick uh, from the Cadre Journal. I'm really excited to be here to talk about um, the the idea of degrowth. I have a really awesome guest um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this this really unique idea. And um, Jamie, uh, if you want to present yourself, uh, that'd be awesome. Hi, thank you, Merrick. I'm Jamie Tyberg. I use she, her pronouns. I'm based in Occupy Canarsie lands or what is currently known as Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm a Korean organizer and I was born in Korea. I moved to um, Georgia and now I'm here in New York. And I'm really excited to talk about degrowth with you. Awesome, thank you. Um, so, you know, let's let's just get right into it. I feel like degrowth is something that is definitely gaining popularity and but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it and people who are hesitant to you know, really take it on. So if you could just give us a, you know, an overview um, of what degrowth is and maybe some of the critiques that degrowth uh, tries to answer, uh, like critiques of, of our modern, like growth oriented society. Um, if you could just kind of go into those basic points, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Like many things, uh, degrowth begins with a criticism and it it's mainly a criticism of the hegemony of growth and of measuring growth in a society strictly in economic terms, such as the gross domestic product, which we were all taught in school. And ecological economists um, who had an understanding of physics and thermodynamics and were integrating it into economic theory we're able to point out the direct correlation between economic growth and environmental degradation. Um, one of the important concepts that they named was um, a French term called dépense, which means expense or expenditure. And it's used by degrowthers to refer to how a society allocates their surplus after the basic human needs of the population have been met. Um, of course, in our current economic system, not only are basic human needs not met, but that social surplus is privately accumulated by those who own the means of production and then invested to produce more economic growth through individual consumption, as opposed to collective acts to build a meaningful community. Um, and so already in criticizing that current growth society, deep growth literature was promoting an alternate way of organizing society, at least. Um, I would say since then, degrowth has evolved to embrace anti-imperialism more recently um, and in acknowledging that imperialism is the primary contradiction of our time. And what that means is that many more people in the degrowth movement now understand that resolving that contradiction between the socialized nature of production, meaning like everybody having to work to produce the things that we have versus the private accumulation of capital, meaning we are the ones producing things, but who gets rich and who profits from that labor is just a handful of people. And that that results in ecological destruction 
And to resolve this is in fact degrowth. So it's not just the hege hegemony of growth is bad, but if we are to one, criticize something and also provide an alternate vision of something, then we must take action towards that. And that action first and foremost is to resolve this contradiction. Um, but I think throughout that sort of development and evolution, degrowth has always maintained the vision of a society in which you know, growth is not measured by um, what destroys life, but rather what reproduces life, uh, where the economy is structured around our right to live as opposed to our right to consume, and where what is produced and how it is distributed meets everyone's needs and is in accordance with the limits of the natural world. I think maybe perhaps we're at a point where we may disagree about how we get to such a world, but all of us in the degrowth movement, I believe, align in that being the destination. Yeah, I, it's interesting that you ended on on that point of kind of the multiple perspectives, because when I first was like introduced to degrowth and when I started reading about it, it, it seemed to me that there were like a variety of tendencies, uh, like political ideological tendencies. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked a lot with, you know, friends in private about, all right, so how can we implement like, or is, is degrowth uh, compatible with Marxism-Leninism or, you know, what are some of the the ideologies that it is compatible with? Because I've I've heard people, some people say that, you know, degrowth, degrowth is still possible under, you know, social democracy type organizations or even under capitalism. Um, and I would love to hear if you have some some thoughts on kind of what kind of what kind of uh, ideological balances degrowth has, or maybe the history of ideology within degrowth itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I always say, you know, there's so many different, there's a variety of methods, there's a variety of organizational structures, there's a variety of, you know, campaigns that we could pursue. And all of them would be good. And if all of them you know, result in people being activated and politicized and committing to something that's bigger than they are, all of that is good. However, to return to, you know, the Marxist-Leninist analysis of our current economic system, if it is in fact imperialism from which all the other issues emerge, then we must grasp at the root the root cause of everything that we are dealing with. And again, to go back to that contradiction that I think more in degrowth are seeing, if it is in fact the contradiction between, again, the socialized nature of our labor and the private accumulation of capital that allows those um, who own the means of production to pursue as much as they want to just because they can for the sake of profit, um, and that leading to the sort of climate crisis at this scale that we are seeing today, then that work is in fact the primary task of degrowthers. And I think I don't think there's you know any lack of evidence that it's the imperialist institutions um, that are bankrolling the climate crisis. So I think it's good to start somewhere 
However, the more you organize and the more you study and the more you try to apply the different methods, the more you're going to end up coming back to the issue of imperialism because that's the primary contradiction from all, where from all other contradictions are emerging. For sure. this That centrality of imperialism, I think, is what really like entice me towards your work because you the way you write uh, I'm speaking in specific about this one article you have on learning from degrowth to decolonization um, which I just really enjoy your analysis and of you know that that degrowth uh, especially in the way you describe it is in itself like a decolonial act or, or should be used for decolonization um, mm -hmm. you know and this like rethinking of like what development or like what society will look like in the future you know that's like historical development um and now that you add this kind of like you know we should be you know activated we should be almost militant about it and go out and and really you know do something about this issue of degrowth i, I would love for you to talk about you have these three uh, like key points um you, you say autonomy mm -hmm. care and sustainability um could you like expand on that and talk about it in the sense of like 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 activism and, and like organizing work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, it was sufficiency, which are similar words, um, autonomy, care, and sufficiency from that essay. Um, I think to me, autonomy, care, and sufficiency are really distinctively human features um, in that they involve dialectical thinking as well as long-term planning and visioning. Um, and I believe those three are the ingredients to transitioning into a stateless society, or people may call it communism or anarchy. Um, they're dialectical in that they cannot exist without one or the other. They help produce one another and they're changed by one another. So sufficiency, which is a rule of distributive, distributive justice stating that Everyone today and tomorrow should have enough to satisfy their fundamental human needs would not be possible without the self-restraint that's required by autonomy. An autonomy, which is the ability to govern ourselves without the imposition of a ruling class, which we can't really even imagine right now, um, would not be possible without us creating a culture of care that fosters those self-limitations and teaches us that we in fact should not pursue all that can be pursued for the sake of collectivity and planetary boundaries. So all of these traits um, are things that every single one of us will need to learn and develop and incorporate as a habit into daily life if we're to advance into a stateless society once again. And to go back to your question, how do we do this, right? We are not gonna be able to do this alone. We have to be committed to an organization for us to even be confronted with our lack of these traits to one practice, how to even, you know, gain these traits in our daily life. Um, and then to make that a standard for the majority of the people so that we as a society can transition to the next stage of society 
is really the work of organization. Um, and we're, we're simply just not going to get to degrowth or communism or anything um, that requires the overthrow of the current existing ruling class if we at the bottom are not organized and are not practicing these, these traits amongst ourselves and making obsolete the ways of our enemies. Definitely. I, I think that basic principle of like, you know, practice what you preach or, you know, really like setting that foundation. If, if we want to see it in the future, we have to, you know, try to apply it now in the different ways we can. Um, and definitely, you know, I think there is definitely a lack of organizations which are discussing, you know, not only the environment, I think sometimes I use climate change as this, you know, large mm -hmm. word and they don't have a, there's oftentimes not a genuine, uh, analysis of how we can address that in the future. Um, and I think part of that has to do with, you know, how we look at the world um, and some theories. Uh, in particular for me, I'm very influenced by thinkers like Andre Gundefrank and Cardozo who talk about uh, underdevelopment and historical underdevelopment um, mm. and kind of, you know, the process by which you know, or even Walter Rodney, who talks about, you know, how Europe underdeveloped Africa and this process of taking from the third world to build up the first world. I think for a lot of people mm -hmm. that that feels like, all right, the third world has to catch up. But I think, you know, degrowth has has a has an alternative opinion or maybe a different perspective. So, you know, I would love if you could talk more about, you know, what do you think, you know, degrowth could give or add to that issue of historical underdevelopment, um, specifically, you know, for the third world, I think in in the settler colonial context, I think it's a little bit more clear, but maybe on a, a global context, it's a little bit more hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think it's, again, I think it's really important to position degrowth within a dialectical framework. Right. So as you're saying about underdevelopment and development, we need to be asking questions like who is degrowing so that who can grow? What is being reduced to allow something else to be increased? Um, so like you're saying, for example, Walter Rodney and his, you know, how Europe underdeveloped Africa really emphasizes that dialectical relationship between development and underdevelopment when he shows through historical evidence that the rapid development of Western Europe and the United States was made possible through the underdevelopment of Africa and the rest of the world. Um, and as we said earlier, again, it's the International Monetary Fund that bankrupts so many countries. Um, it's the World Bank and the U.S. sanctions list that work hand in hand to ensure that existing socialist states or any nation that's a threat to the imperialist world order are heavily sanctioned and are ineligible to receive any financial assistance or loans. It's precisely these institutions and the empire of the United States and all of its allies that the degrowth movement is concerned with degrowing. Um, I think also to what you're saying, it's incorrect or perhaps even dangerous to assert that the global South countries should catch up to the level of technology technological development of the global north. Um, I mean, for one, because that technological overdevelopment that we have in places like this country um, has resulted in 
social underdevelopment, uh, which I do not need to expand on further for we all see it outside. I mean, I think something like half of the country is illiterate now. Um, and it's simply not preferable to the majority of human beings. Um, and secondly, we know now for certain that it's this commodification of human labor and the territorial expansion of the financial monopoly that's destroying the planet. And so more countries actually catching up to that level would put us, would exceed like far, so far beyond our planetary boundaries, which we're already um, crossing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, talking about degrowing in some parts and growing in other parts, I think is such a great, you know, like dialectic and and and, and understanding yeah. of how how the thing of how degrowth would really look. I think sometimes we hear a word and we we apply it just just the the entomology of the word and not actually you know tackle the what it's trying to present but like present. Um, and mm -hmm. I think um, this whole viewpoint really gives anyone who's interested in you know revolution and, and advancing the world a new perspective on what that would look like you know oftentimes we we say we want a different world and what that different world looks like i think is all often very muddled so when you talk about you know what we have now is definitely what we should not be striving for you know like we shouldn't just want you know everyone in the world to live like an american you know that that would be the most disastrous thing for for everybody you know mm -hmm. the, the the resource strain the the social strain that you say i mean i think both of those two things, you know, really make degrowth such a strong, uh, like a very interesting thing to analyze and, and apply to itself, you know, whether you're in a Marxist-Leninist organization or any other organization interested in just, you know, building something more and beyond. Um, and, I, and I'd love for you to maybe talk more about why, you know, there's there is a large activism around the climate change around you know like there's the whole green new deal and there's a lot of like liberal perspective on climate change but i think mm -hmm. someone who would be interested in degrowth really has to reconcile with the you know the entire global issue so for those people who are maybe interested in climate change and interested in this activism like what would you say to them that degrowth uh provides that you know like climate change activism just by itself doesn't doesn't necessarily get to. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back and make a point about if, if everyone had the sort of um, lifestyle as the U.S. I believe the research shows that if that were the case, we would need um, five planets, like five separate Earths. Um, so just keeping that in mind, it may even be seven, I can't remember, but the number just keeps going up because our energy and consumption output just keeps increasing. Um, but for that question of like climate activism and how it shows up in liberal ways, I mean, first and foremost, it's we have to not blame these people because it's by design. Neoliberalism was such a profoundly successful project that people are really, incapable of thinking about things in a group or a collective or organizational sense and it all the the individual is the self and the individual is like the only distinct figure 
um, and to break that sort of training almost the neoliberal training is already hard enough um, but for those who, who are there and are deeply concerned about the climate crisis you know I always say if if the starting point is wrong the rest that follows will be wrong. So if the root of your analysis or assessment of the climate crisis is wrong, the actions that you take to mend it and make sure it never happens again will also be wrong. Um, so I think we were talking about this earlier with the different organizational structures, different sort of ideologies that exist. All of that is good and fine. However, if your end goal is revolution, if your end goal is communism, if your end goal is degrowth and for the climate crisis to never happen and for every single person for generations to come to be shocked at the fact that we allowed so much poison and pollution to happen, then we must one, commit to an organization and two, really think I think going back to the three traits, like really, really embody and practice and learn the importance of things like autonomy and care and sufficiency. Um, the, you know, we always talk about unlearning certain things, um, but the next step of that would be to relearn the things that made us human beings. I, I think that's a great point. I mean, the, the issue of, of unlearning and, and the process we get to that point is very complicated. Um, and, and if I would love to ask you as well, um, what was your own kind of process of going to degrowth? I know kind of before we started this call, we talked a little bit how, you know, climate change is one of those things that the, like one of the reasons I asked this question is because, you know, I, I've, you know, I think a lot of people would be interested in degrowth, those who are in the climate change movement and activism, those people definitely, you know, they're, I think their head's in the right place, but I think degrowth would answer a lot of questions long-term for them. So I would love if, you know, if you could expand a little bit on your own kind of how you got to degrowth, what were you reading um, and what, what were you unlearning too, uh, that, you know, mm -hmm. that'd be really, I think, informative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I was saying earlier, I was very, much politicized and activated by the climate crisis, um, realizing that reality was at odds with what had what had been told to us about our future, right? Um, and that when I first started organizing, um, the first climate campaign that I was a part of was the divestment campaign. So in New York, New York City, and state, uh, we were trying to divest. Um, from banks that um, do business with like fossil fuel companies, right? And to make sure like our pension funds um, and just our public dollars were not being held in those banks. We were successful in that campaign. By that, I mean, we got the people in charge to agree on paper nominally that they would divest from these banks and these institutions. What happened in reality was that there was no alternative. There was nowhere else to put this money because all banks were doing business with fossil fuel 
all banks were doing business with mass incarceration. Um, all banks were doing business with military and war um, and weapons. And that, that was one of the biggest campaigns that I was part of at first as a young 20 something year old. And it was so shattering because not only did we work our ass off to quote unquote win something, but nothing had changed and nothing was going to change. Um, and then there's just a series of these sort of campaigns, right? Where we win and we pass some sort of legislation or something signed, but materially nothing's changing. And in fact, things are getting worse and worse. Um, and the fundamental, you know, world order is kept intact. Um, and I, another thing that I realized while organizing was not only are our incorrect and change fundamentally, but people within the climate movement really were not thinking of outside of the U.S. borders. Um, so there was zero mention of the U.S. military being the top institutional polluter on Earth. Um, I remember, you know, organizing the People's Climate March and asking where the demands are around U.S. military. Um, and all of these sort of, I guess, I don't want to say mistakes or failures, but just shortcomings of this system by design um, really pushed me towards degrowth. Um, because here was something that was, you know, centering the fact that we have to reduce these things. It's not just, oh, let's change out the banks. It's, it's saying, no, we have to actually reduce the scale and the scope of business of these banks until they are no longer existing. Um, we have to reduce things like, you know, the military budget so that the budget for education and healthcare could grow. Um, there, see, like, everybody fighting for something was not really, again, thinking dialectically about why that thing was lacking so that something else could be increased. Um, and so that sort of framing that degrowth forced upon me was really, really helpful in, I think, expanding my analysis. Um, and then eventually, you know, I find dialectical materialism and Marxism-Leninism um, which really opened all the curtains for me um, in terms of methods and analysis and history. But yeah, I think this is why I say like, again, if your starting point is wrong then the rest that follows will be wrong and you're just gonna keep coming up to the same wall and your body is gonna get tired. You're gonna become more pessimistic, which is anti-revolutionary. Um, you're not going to be changing as a human being either. Um, and so there's a lot with your organization and how that organization is governed and structured and what sort of work that you decide to do. The, your point about um, pessimism, that was actually going to be what I, what I wanted to like bring up next because I think when you talk about the structure of you know like activism like liberal activism in particular you can you can have mm -hmm. successes you know like you said like you can have these goals it can be successful 
but even those successes can lead so many people to nihilism just like you know i think if you know one of the reasons that you know cadre the cadre journal exists is for all those young people who are really interested in changing the world giving them an idea of what the alternative world looks like and i think because mm-hmm. if you don't have that it's so easy to go into that pessimism into that nihilism you can be part of this huge campaign you know get you know some of your goals completed and then there's still more work to be done because that that mm-hmm. campaign is is very small in scope uh you know and that comes down to the structure it comes down to all these different elements to it um and i really want you know this discussion i think like for me is is already like you know uh, really inspiring me to do more revolutionary work because we ha- we have to develop something beyond nihilism we have to develop something beyond this kind of mm-hmm. you know end of the world capitalism you know i i think that so many young people you know just like you said in your 20s we're really excited about doing something new building something new but there's so much too that kind of comes back at us like ah but it won't work but it won't work so if we can mm-hmm. build some kind of alternative i think that is like what the most principal thing is um in the in the minds of young people to really believe in and develop an alternative in their own minds first um and you know with that being said what what is the the current organizing work like how when you go into organizing spaces um within your you know the orgs you're a part of what is your discussions on degrowth kind of focus on or how do you get your organizations to you know, recenter degrowth and, you know, imperialism as well, this kind of relationship between degrowth and imperialism. What are your, some of your, you know, experiences with trying to get organizations to take up that, that mantle? Mm-hmm. I think degrowth can um, easily be divided into three parts. So there's the material degrowth, um, actually degrowing, like how much of our natural world we are manipulating um, and then there's the economic degrowth actually degrowing the you know financial um, imperialist world order and all of its institutions that um, maintain it and then there's cultural degrowth which is really about who are we as human beings um, what have we become as a species due to capitalism um, and imperialism and all of the violence that came with it um, and how are we actually changing as human beings so that we ourselves are creating the new world that we want as well as the new world being reflected in who we are as human beings. Um, so the most important thing for me in my organizations is not just you know learning about degrowth and talking about degrowth and studying degrowth and trying to maybe run degrowth campaigns, it's how are we degrowing those values within us that we no longer want, that we see as part of the old world that we want to destroy. Um, and the best method for that is the practice of criticism, self-criticism. And Gracie Boggs has talked about this um, in detail, um, but pretty much every revolutionary that I've read since learned about criticism, self-criticism, has practiced criticism, self-criticism. So George Jackson talks about it with um, his incarcerated comrades on the inside. Um, Ho Chi Minh talks about it for the Vietnamese communists. Um, obviously Mao, Kim Jong-il, um, Sankara talks about it for the Burkinabe Revolutionary Council. 
Um, they all did it. Um, and how it works is one, we're practicing giving and receiving criticism, which is really hard because communication and being open and actually stepping into accountability is really foreign to us. Um, and then secondly, that criticism or self-criticism has to be about how your actions and your behaviors and your um, patterns from, again, that are from the old world are impacting the organization's work and moving forward. Um, and so it's never a question of, hey, you didn't do something because you're lazy. It's, hey, for whatever reason, um, and I want to ask you like why you couldn't do this, but because you couldn't, it delayed the conversation that we should have had at this meeting and therefore, you know, the movements of our organization. Um, and so it really, I think, instills in you that dialectical framework of how are my actions impacting the goals of others as well as myself? Um, how are the actions of others, in fact, um, altering me and my actions, my beliefs? Um, and you're also practicing that sort of care, right? And not the neoliberal sort of self-care where we're like buying you a bunch of shit because you're having a bad day, but really trying to interrogate why is it that you weren't able to do this? You know, is it like financial issues? Is it something that's going on at home? Or is it actually the way this organization itself is operating that is not allowing you to contribute or participate fully? Because in that case, we should discuss how we as an organization can change so that everybody can participate better, right? And that then leads to sufficiency and autonomy because then we'll last longer and we'll be more effective and powerful. And each person or each you know, subbody within the organization would be able to move autonomously because we are all acting with care and with each other in mind. Um, there's a really good quote from this writing, this um, text called How to Be a Good Communist. Um, and he says, everybody, what I'm gonna butcher it, but maybe we can paraphrase or find the actual quote later, but he's, you should be the first to worry and the last to enjoy yourself. And at first, you know, say like just an average American reading that sentence, that can be really threatening. Like I, I'm not going to be the first to worry and the last to enjoy. Um, and that's, you know, the neoliberalism talking, like when, you know, COVID-19 first hit, uh, we had Americans giving interviews being like, I'm not staying home. Like I'm going to go on and do things, right? But when you think about that statement, um, be the first to worry and the last to enjoy and apply that to every single person in the room, then there would be no worries because everybody's already, you know, thinking ahead of time about what worries may come up. And then everybody would be enjoying the things because that worry was already taken care of and now everybody can sit back and enjoy whatever it was. And so it's really that thinking of applying things collectively and how we are thinking about the collective 
and changing ourselves for the betterment of the collective um, that I think is the most important like practice of degrowth in an organization. That that discussion, that you know, whole explanation of criticism, self-criticism, I think that was so wonderful because you know, a lot of times we talk about, you know, being in community, organizing, and and sometimes it gets to the point where it's like we don't want to do anything that would maybe, you know, feel like someone's being attacked. But when you frame it mm-hmm. like this, you know, I think some people are scared of criticism, self-criticism. And self-criticism and criticism is something that um, I'm trying to apply in my own organizing spaces, you know, uh, experimenting with it, seeing how it works. I was introduced to it um, by a friend of mine, Space, um, and he he just had such a really great way of using, just like you said, criticism, self-criticism as a way of building community. And, mm-hmm. you know, we want to be not only cognizant of, you know, what you're not doing, but, but why, you know, I think that's, that was like a great point. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think you tied it up really well with, you know, that, that quote, I mean, even if it is paraphrased, I don't think it was butchered. I think you used it so elegantly in the sense <laughs> that it, when we, if we, if we're the, the first to worry and the last to enjoy ourselves, if we're in, in a genuine community and organizing with our comrades that means that you're always being put first and you're putting yourself last someone else is putting you first and I think that is exactly. much more powerful statement than just you know everyone fend for themselves you have you know no support there's no structure like you know giving people time for you know developing their capacity developing their thoughts developing you know and just dealing with the issues of everyday life, you know, we live under capitalism, and that creates so many contradictions, so many problems. And so I think that that focus on community is not only a good way to bring up degrowth, because, you know, obviously, degrowth is something we should be talking about. So when we have criticism, self-criticism, we can say, hey, you know, we we should be talking about the climate, we should be talking about the environment, How how does our organization, you know, Uh, consider those issues address those issues but also through the same process we're also saying you know are we growing at a pace that is you know detrimental to other people you know we have to reorient Mm -hmm. the organization Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes organizations have this problem of of growth mindset it's like oh we need to you know have a you know 300,000 followers by the end of the year or you know we need to you know have this many meetings or do this many things even that, you know, can be dangerous to ourselves because, you know, we have limits. We have to address those limits. We have to be mm-hmm. understanding of our capacity. So I feel like that cultural degrowth is really, you know, something that that ties it all together. Um, and I'm really glad also that you talk about like this, like scientific aspect of it, because um, I think that's important as well. Um, and on that, I, I wanted to ask what what were what are some of the like degrowth thinkers um, or kind of people talking about degrowth um, that you think would be good for other people to read, or maybe books or articles that you think have a good you know that can expand more upon it? Because obviously, you know, we don't have I don't think an hour can you know really touch on everything about degrowth. So like, where where can people go further from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, I think, two buckets. Um, one is just actual degrowth folks who are writing about the, and then I, I think the other bucket is, 
if we are to understand degrowth as a revolutionary process, then it's of course critical that we study revolutionaries who've actually been successful um, in overthrowing the ruling class and implementing the next stage of society. Um, of course, we have to expand on their theories for their theories emerge from their practice and ours must emerge from ours, but we cannot know where to begin without studying them. Um, so I think for that bucket, yeah, definitely Walter Rodney, um, just on the concept of development and underdevelopment um, and the quantitative and qualitative changes that a society goes through. I think he's really, really brilliant. Um, of course, Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs, her partner, um, who've written, who were writing decades ago about the need for um, US to give up things um, for the sake of revolution. Um, how, of course, I think to understand dialectics, like we were saying earlier, is really important. Um, and the concept of contradiction and being able to identify primary from subordinate contradictions is, is really important. So all of that will be in um, Mao and Engels, Marx, Lenin, Stalin. I can also share like specific texts you could also just do like 10 texts by Mao alone and be so good. Um, on the degrowth bucket, um, it's of course, it's gonna be a lot of, you know, European or white academics, um, but I think they have a really, really strong foundation of the, the scientific aspect of it around, you know, the ecology um, and as well as economics, I think um, a lot of just thorough, thorough research and investigation is something that I think the degrowthers are really good at. Um, so, you know, the, the folks that people know, like Jason Hickel, Yorios uh, Callis, um, some of the newer books that have been coming out around degrowth, but just between the two of them, Callis has written so much. Um, he has a topic on degrowth and everything else. Um, yeah, I think those are, yeah, I think it's important to understand not only degrowth, but dialectics, contradiction, and revolution. I, I'm glad that you started with the, the revolutionaries and like how, even though they may not say the word degrowth, you know, like, I think Rod, I think you're right in the sense that Rodney's analysis of underdevelopment um, and really the way to move forward is in itself, you know, an element of degrowth and kind of having this wide spectrum of different thinkers, mm -hmm. both, you know, you know, marginalized groups, revolutionaries, you know, what academics, even if they are white, you know, they have an analysis that that is useful for us to, you know, incorporate into our own thinking. And of course, I have mm -hmm. to say that. I think you are definitely someone who people should read. And in the show notes, um, we're definitely going to link to uh, your writings because um, I think those are very, they were very good for me, influential in my own understanding. Um, and mm -hmm. I definitely recommend that everyone goes 
you know, when they read through through, you know, Marx, Mao, I think Mao, like Mao in specific, especially on contradiction, definitely should consider how you can consider the environment and how what he's saying about mm-hmm. imperialism is also an issue of the environment. Um, so definitely all these these great thinkers, I think people should should look into. And I'm going to look into a lot of them because they're names that I have never heard of. Um, so and of course, we're going to connect to your your notes as well. Um, with that, we're, we're getting close to an hour. Um, mm-hmm. Are is there anything, you know, final remarks or and how people if you want people to read anything, do anything, kind of get the people activated? This is this is your time to say whatever you'd like. You know, what I always say, join an organization. Um, um, it's going to be hard to find. It may be hard to find a good one, but it's always what you make it. Um, the organization is not, you know, a permanent thing, but a malleable phenomenon that I think anybody can influence and shape um, if they're a part of it. And we're just simply not gonna get to achieve any of this alone on our own. We're not gonna, it's hard to even learn about yourself when you're just by yourself. Um, You're really gonna have to be organizing with others. Um, And there's so many people who know so much more than you do. And to be in community with them just makes you a stronger organizer. Um, And it also allows you to rest. I think the most important thing about degrowth and like understanding our limits, our limits, our physical limits and our body, our emotional limits. Um, Being in an organization really allows you to step back and take rest when you need to and others step in for you and the work continues. Um, That's not possible when you're alone. That is a really excellent point. I really, and I would love to second that and urge everyone to organize, group with, find community everywhere, anywhere you are, um, because I think that's really where we make our most process is when we have a conversation. I mean, really, Cadre's kind of, I think the Cadre Journal interviews are really kind of this uh, supplement to the issue of learning and community. You know, we get to have a little conversation, but nothing beats uh having comrades with you that you can talk regularly about you know the real issues in your life and how that relates mm-hmm. to the issue of revolution and how revolution is really a solution for all of us uh so thank you so much for uh taking time to talk with us to talk about degrowth um this was a really wonderful interview i think so thank you again thank you so much for having me this was fun